0: It was probably uh, four months ago now that I was sitting in my office and Tim popped in and he said, hey, Jeremy, um, are you ready to teach again in August? It's kind of become a tradition that in August when Tim takes a vacation, that the young guys, now that I'm 40, I'm not sure if that counts, but um, the young guys get a chance to preach. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm totally up for it. He said, how does the last Sunday in August sound? Sounds great. He said, perfect, you're going to be doing uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. I was like, all right, and I wrote it down on a little sticky note, and I stuck it on my monitor, and, and he left, and I was feeling pretty good about myself, like, yeah, I'm going to get a chance to teach again, this is going to be so great, and then I started going, wait a second, Ephesians 5, let me look, Ooh, Tim, you got me. So I've been nervous for, you know, four months straight now, about this morning, um, Something else interesting happened within probably two weeks of Tim giving me that assignment as I'm chewing on this, having to preach this morning. Uh, Rachel and I were doing uh, what good married couples do, since this is a marriage uh, sermon. We were binge watching a television show on Netflix. Um, we're watching through the West Wing. We, had, we didn't watch it when it was on TV, but when you're looking for that you know, seven seasons long commitment that you want to dive into, it seemed like a great place to start. So we're a couple of weeks after I get the the uh, assignment, and this episode begins one night, and my mouth just like drops open, and I'm like, can you believe this? And so I've, I've taken the liberty of clipping two minutes of the opening of this episode of The West Wing to share with you this morning, because TV is gonna be better than me anyway, right? Uh, now I wanna give you a few, so here's a little of the context. It's the president and his wife, the first lady. They're coming back from church, actually. Uh, and I also wanna give the disclaimer that this is primetime television. I don't endorse everything that is said in the two minutes. But watch it and then we'll pick it up from here. Good afternoon.
1: Hi Charlie. How was church? It, it was sucked. fine, stop it. it sucked. You're talking about church. Oh, like I'm not already going to hell. What was the problem? He feels the homily lacked panache. It did lack panache. It was a perfectly lovely homily on Ephesians 5, 21. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, she's skipping over the part that says, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. I do skip over that part. Why? Because it's stupid. Okay. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in something. In splendor. And I have no problem with Ephesians. And any time you want me to cleanse you with the washing of water, you know I'm up for it. Then what is your problem? Hackery. Oh. This guy was a hacker. He had a captive audience, and the way I know that is that I tried to tunnel out of there several times. He had an audience, and he didn't know what to do with it. You want him to sing Valare? It couldn't have hurt. Words, oh, words when spoken out loud for the sake of performance are music. They have rhythm and pitch and timbre and volume. These are the properties of music. And music has the ability to find us and move us and lift us up in ways that literal meaning can't. Do you see? You are an oratorical snob. Yes, I am, and God loves me for it. You said he was sending you to hell. For other stuff, not for this. You can't just trot out Ephesians, which he blew, by the way. It has nothing to do with husbands and wives. It's all of us. St. Paul begins the passage, be subject to one another out of reverence to Christ. Be subject to one another. In this day and age of 24-hour cable crap devoted to feeding the voyeuristic gluttony of an American public hooked on a bad soap opera that's passing itself off as important, don't you think you might be able to find some relevance in verse 21? How do we end the cycle? Be subject to one another. So, this is about you. No, it's not about me. Well, yes, it is about me, but tomorrow it'll be about somebody else. We'll
0: watch Larry King and see who. All hacks off the stage right now. Okay, so as you can imagine, I looked to Rachel. I was like, can you believe this? I've never heard a primetime television show talk about the Bible that much and do a decent job talking about it. I was shocked. I was like, that's going in the sermon. I'll figure out some way to make it work. <laughs> and, and here's the deal. This is honestly a little bit of how I, how I feel right now. I'm trapped between two audiences. One audience says, let's just skip this because it's stupid. And the other one says, get this guy off the stage. He screwed it up. He's a hack, right? That's the tension that I'm feeling here this morning. And maybe you're feeling a little bit of tension between last week and this week as well. And I think the reason that there's a little bit of tension in the room is because this is actually pushing on something in us that's deeper than just husbands and wives. It's deeper rooted than just marriage. This idea of submission and of putting someone else's needs and concerns above my own, it pushes on the most innate, dark parts of our heart, the parts of us that are conditioned to fight for our rights, and for, to fight for our own self-preservation. And this morning, we're going to push right into that. And I'll, and I'll be honest, I, I am a little nervous about this sermon. I want to I be helpful, and I want to be faithful to what the text says. But I'm also a man standing up here talking to wives. And let's be honest, that feels a little weird. So I'm going to ask you to join me this morning on your behalf and on my behalf that God would meet us here as we wrestle through it. Can we pray? God, I come before you because you are a loving Father who knows us intimately. You know our weaknesses and you know our strengths and you know where we need to grow. And you know how sin has twisted us at the deepest of levels. God, we pray this morning that you would meet us, that the Holy Spirit would be here and that we would be transformed because there's a battle at war and we want to follow Jesus who we love. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, we have to remember one of the things in dealing with a letter like we have here, you know, we we call this the book of Ephesians, but it is more accurately a letter in which Paul, a pastor or apostle, wrote uh, to a church in a very real place in a very real time. And this typically would have been read in one sitting out loud. And so what you get is the building of an argument that Paul's making throughout the whole letter. And it's one of the things that we can actually lose as we break it down into smaller bits in order to talk about it over the course of you know nine or ten months. So I'm going to give you a quick 30-second overview heading into this letter so that we can grasp where we're picking it up. So you have to remember what Paul says is that we are going to praise our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over all things. We praise God who has united us together, us together with Christ, and that we rule alongside him. He has done this for us, rebels, those who have turned their back on God, and he has done it out of his good love for us. He has done it because of the faith that we have put in him who died and was raised and now reigns. God is doing something now in the people of God, something incredible. He is making us into one new humanity because within us now there is no division. There is no superiority. There is no inside or outside. There is no race. There is one new man united under Christ who is our head and we Are his body. And because of this great mystery, which we can hardly get our arms around, God is doing something within us. He is creating in us a new humanity, a picture of what it looks like to live under the kingship of Lord Jesus. And it is an incredible truth. And so, in us and among us, He is beginning to see us transformed into our head, Jesus. He is encouraging us to leave behind our old self, to let the dead us fall aside, and for a new man to be raised in its place, and for us to live into this amazing truth that the Holy Spirit now lives in us, and that we are a living temple to a holy God on earth, and what he is doing here in this place among his people is unique in the history of the world. Can I get an amen? amen. That is what God is doing, and that is what he has been telling us in, up until this moment in the book of Ephesians. And so to coldly pick it up and just say, oh, no, this is something for wives. Let's talk about you. No, this is grand. This is historic. This is amazing. And so let's pick up right there in chapter 5. I'm actually going to back up one verse. I'm going to to go to uh, Brian's last verse from his sermon, verse 21 in chapter 5, and we're going to read together. Here's what it says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, right off the bat, if I'm looking at this, and I understand who Paul was and the culture that he's writing into and the time he's writing into, I, I, ha, I see something strange right away. And the, the strange thing is that Paul begins by addressing wives. And In this cultural reality, that would have been strange. And we have to remember, it's absolutely essential when reading these letters that we cannot remove them completely from the cultural reality and the time in which they were written because they do not disqualify what Paul says, but instead they help us to understand why he emphasizes what he does, and hopefully it'll help us understand a little better what he's trying to get at. You see, Ephesus in the first century was a major seat of culture and influence. In fact, most historians would say that Ephesus was second only to Rome in the Roman Empire in size, in economy, and in influence, And in that culture, in the Roman cultural norms and expectations around households, is the place that hangs, that's something that hangs directly over these households that are in the church in Ephesus. They've been listening to Paul tell them about this miraculous new life and new reality in Jesus, and that we're submitted to a king, not the Roman Empire, not the emperor. Okay, Paul, so what does that look like for our households? Now, it'd probably be helpful for us to know, well, okay, so how did Romans view women in this culture? Well, uh, I found a quote from the Roman philosopher Cicero. I'm sure you guys read Cicero a lot, I know I do. Um, I, wanna, I, I said, when you put this up here, make sure it says Cicero at the end, so no one thinks I said this. Here's what Cicero said 2,000 years ago in, in Rome. Our ancestors, in their wisdom, considered that all women, because of their innate weakness, should be under the control of guardians i.e. men. Cicero, he was a real feminist icon. <laughs> now he says, not, not only is this the way it is now and the way it should be, it's the way it's been for a long time because those guys were smart. That's how Cicero addresses this. The Roman household was structured in a classically patriarchal order. A man was in charge of his house and he was legally and socially responsible for his household being orderly, and being an upstanding Roman family. You were essentially a minor tribal lord over your household, and the Roman government held you responsible for what happened in it and whether you were good Roman citizens or not. You were held responsible for whether you were keeping things in order. You were responsible for raising good Roman citizens that would continue the strength of the empire, most importantly sons, because we might need to conscript them into military service someday to defend that empire. That was the responsibility of a man. And for centuries, the standard was that a daughter was under the leadership and authority of her father until the day when her dad, through a quasi-political, quasi-business, quasi-economic arrangement, would find an older man for her to marry. Many times she didn't even know. And then her guardianship would be transferred to him in his household. Now s- s- that had that had been the reality for a long time, but something something unusual is happening in the modern culture of Ephesus during this time, and what was happening was I want you to, uh, women in particular I want you to imagine that you're a young girl of 13 or 14, and you, you're growing up in a household that is wealthy, powerful, politically influential, and comfortable. Okay, and now your dad has arranged for you to be married to someone you maybe don't know and then he transfers you to this guy whose authority you are now under and then, through no fault of your own, you end up with a husband who is a poor family manager or has a drinking problem or loses his wealth because of circumstance or poor business choices or plain foolishness, or he loses his political influence and is now on the outside looking in. You would be trapped in that environment. And so there's been a move afoot in this modern culture to say, you know what, we're going to change that. Yes, of course, women can't be under their own guardianship, but we're actually going to retain a woman's guardianship under her father. Because that way, if she gets stuck with a loser, ladies, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, she's not stuck there. It, it makes for an easy divorce and separation. It's, a, it's proto-feminism in the Roman Empire, Sierra 2,000 years ago. And so the Christian church is growing up in this environment who says, okay, so how does this work? It's always been that she submits to her father until she's married, but now the culture's saying maybe she stays submitted to her dad, but we're a new people, how does this all work? And the church is looking to Paul as their authority on this issue. So it makes sense to me that if they're wondering these questions, that Paul addresses it right off the bat. He says, this is easy. Wives, submit to your own husbands. This follows a long line of thinking of both Jesus and Paul, right? The church is inhabiting the kingdom of God on earth, and it is not being called to some kind of social revolution, In fact, Jesus, when he's given the opportunity to endorse social revolution, when he's asked about taxation policy, what does he say? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's, and he sidesteps the whole issue. They're not called to overthrow the structures in which they're living, and they're also not called to conform to the structures in which they're living. Paul and Jesus call the church to something much more radical, to live faithful kingdom lives in the culture in which they live. What what do I mean by that? Well, Paul is making an, an argument in I would say almost all of his letters, but especially here in Ephesians, that the church in becoming one with Jesus is called to transform into the image of the head of the church because we are his body. And when we look at Jesus, We see a man who rejected and overcame sin and corruption, the sin and corruption that has plagued humanity since the garden, the sinful twisting that has dehumanized our relationships, and we're being called to become one with him and to be transformed into him. Jesus is the prototypical human, the only one who has faithfully lived out a kingdom life amongst us. And he calls us to be united with him and to be transformed into his likeness. So what does that look like? Paul, in another one of his letters to a nearby church, a church in Philippi, writes this. Philippians chapter 2, you can flip there if you want, or you can just take the easy route and follow the screen. Here's what he says. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When Paul describes the life of Jesus, he says he is equal with God. And in every step of his life, he has taken an an intentional move of submission. Lower and lower and lower until he ends up dead in the most humiliating way. That's the path of Jesus. Jesus who describes and lives out what true humanity looks like. How do we become the kind of kingdom people that God is calling us to be? Through willful and willing submission. And in verse 21... We get this instruction that's generic and kind of general. It gets spread all over us, right, to everyone. It says, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And we hear it and we give it up. Mm, amen. Mm, submit to one another. Yes. Wisdom. Yes, it's beautiful. Mm, submit. Oh, God's so smart. This is so, yes, that's it. And then we go to the next verse. Wives, submit to your husbands. Him? You got to be kidding me. This guy? You want me to submit to that one? What does that reveal in us that when we say it generically, like it's some idea you don't really have to practice, it seems easy and beautiful, but the minute we say love that one or love this one, we're ready to throw a table. We're ready to have a social revolution. We're ready to say that this is antiquated and it's stupid and it doesn't take into account the modern reality of social structures. No. Paul says, your responsibility as a Christian in this new reality is to submit to everyone, wives, your husbands first. The key to the verse is verse 21. The most shocking part is that Martin Sheen was right. <laughs> Brian and I were talking this week and we were laughing about this. Kind of, I was making these jokes about the outrage. And I said, it's so funny how in one sentence... The same word is used, and one of them we accept easily, and the second one we're ready to reject whole cloth. And we use the same word. And Brian says, well, now, are you sure that it's the same word? Because maybe in the Greek it's a different word. And I was like, okay, let me go to the Greek. I'll find out. And I want to claim something that isn't true. So I dig. It's even more interesting than that because there isn't two words that are the same word. There is one word. In the original Greek, it says... Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ, dash wives to your husbands first. It is one thought. The call to submission for all Christians applies to all Christians and wives, first of all, to your husband. So, how do we deal with the fact that this seems impossible? Well, I think that's the first step. Admit how hard this seems. Admit that when submission comes to a specific person, that gets really, really dicey. Why does Paul call wives to submit to their husbands? Because we're to model Jesus and to become like him. He has the keys to the unintuitive path to righteous living and to wisdom. It is the path to truly becoming who we've been called to be. It is the path to follow Jesus. Wives, Paul says that the relationship between you and your husband is a mirror of the relationship between Christ and the church, one in which Christ lays down his life to protect and win the hearts of his people, and one in which the church, out of their love and reverence for Jesus because of what he has done for them, lays down their lives to submit to him. I think the two words that we get stuck on here are submission, which we just talked about, and headship. What does it mean to be the head? Well, Jesus is the head of all things. He's the head of the church, and the example that we're given is of him laying down his life to the point of the most humiliating death death humanity has ever dreamed up. There's one example of headship. The second example of headship comes out of Genesis chapter 3. After there is this uh, infamous moment involving fruit and disobedience, Adam and Eve are involved in this sinful engagement of disobedience to God, and God shows up in the garden, and what does he say? He says to the man, where are you? If you want to know what headship looks like, it looks like being held responsible for what goes on in your household. The kind of headship that the Bible speaks about is the kind of headship that you should be very scared about wanting because it requires the death of yourself and responsibility for others. That's a tough road to walk. So we can talk all day about how marriage works in the wider society, uh, about how it worked then, how does it work now, what are cultural norms that, you know, encourage our views of how do we view ourselves, how do we view ourselves as individuals and in marriage. And, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think it really matters at all. I don't think it matters because... The Christian view of marriage reflects a higher, a deeper, a more true creational beauty that Paul talks about in a few verses from here where man and woman in some mysterious miracle drop their singular identities and become one flesh, just like we have done with our Savior Jesus. This mysterious union is a picture and a preview and a sampling of that more incredible reality that Christ and the church are brought together in the same way. We have to keep in mind, this union is not some long-lasting treaty in which two reigning sovereigns agree over a piece of paper and a cup of coffee to be mutually beneficial for each other as long as we agree to be mutually beneficial. No. No. Union is something more incredible altogether in which your identity and their identity are set aside completely and you have been knit together into something brand new, one person. That's the kind of thing that can only exist out of the soaring, self-sacrificing love of submission in marriage and it can only happen because of the soaring, self-sacrificing love of Christ on our behalf. These ideas of union and of head and body and submission are all over Paul's writing. So it would make sense here that as he deals with our uh, most vulnerable, most sensitive, most intimate relationships, that he would say that the key to this piece of life, maybe most of all this piece of life, is to set aside your demands and to seek love and serve and submit to your spouse. Now, ladies, I know some of you in the room right now are saying, you don't know my husband because he ain't no Jesus. And I know it's true because I'm one of those ain't no Jesuses. And it's the reason that Paul in his wisdom addresses those ain't no Jesuses right after this and why God in his sovereignty allowed your ain't no Jesus to get some last week. But this week, it's your turn. And so I'm gonna leave you with a few tips and tricks to practice in your marriage if you want to bring this kind of life to your relationship. The first one is this. Wives, give your husband permission and room to lead your family. I want you to say it out loud to him. Tell him that your desire for him is that he would be freed to live the kind of faithful life to his God that he's been called to live. That you desire and understand that his responsibility is not to the Roman Empire, it's not even to you, it's not to the American Republic, but instead it is to the God who created him and reigns and that he has a responsibility to love you and to nurture your household and you want that for him. Tell him that you're gonna give him space to do it. Tell him that you want him to succeed desperately in this. Tell him that you will be praying for his heart and for wisdom as he strives to be faithful in this role. And then actually do that. Pray for him. And, and then, here's the hardest part, actually give him the room you just said you wanted him to have. Okay? Number two, this is the second thing, be prepared to give him grace when he fails. And you might have a lot of retroactive grace you need to apply. The reality is that either through lack of practice or through poor decision-making or laziness or unforeseen circumstances or foolishness, he has failed or is failing or will fail in his desire and willingness to lead you perfectly. That's just the way it's going to be. So be prepared to offer grace instead of condemnation when it happens because you're going to want the same kindness in return and it's the only thing that can stop the cycle of destruction in marriages. Grace. Be hungry for it in your marriage. Third, strive to be his most trustworthy and reliable advisor. In the Roman household, the father, the head of the household was the pater familia, the head of the house, but in every difficult and arduous conversation and decision that he had to make, it was, ex- make, it was expected that he would confer with the family concilia, the family council, and the primary member of his council was his wife. That's something that you should strive to be in your husband's life. And you say, wait, I'm supposed to already be that. What do you mean strive for it? Striving for it means exactly what you think it is. You know what it looks like to have an advisor that you want to turn to. That person that when you're struggling to make a decision, I want to go to them. What does that look like? It means that they're patient. It means that they're willing to listen. It means that they're not in a rush to make judgment. It means that you're not going to be overly emotional about the decision that's being made. It means that you're willing to help point towards wisdom but not beat somebody over the head with the wisdom that seems so obvious to you. You want someone who is patient and roots for good in the life of their friend. Strive to be that kind of advisor in your marriage. Fourth Earn and foster a voice of critique in your marriage. Your husband, like you, is probably failing and struggling to fill out this role in his life. He's probably struggling and failing to love you perfectly, to submit, and to care for you like Christ loved the church. And I guarantee you're failing in the same way. We need to be careful that when we talk about submission, particularly as we address wives, that we do not say that this means you do not have a voice of critique because your voice of critique is one of the most helpful gifts that God has given to a marriage. In places of ongoing sin or neglect or foolishness or mismanagement, you need to, Be a voice of reason for faithfulness to your Savior. That's your role. You are a gift of reproof and critique for your husband in your marriage. But you can misuse that gift. What does it look like? It looks like complaining, badgering, nagging, withholding affection when he makes decisions that I do not like. I understand the hurt that comes from being looked over, from not being taken seriously. But if you want to have a valuable voice of critique when it's needed in your marriage, then you have to fight for it. Your incredibly valuable voice of critique can be wasted in your marriage so quickly, because of overuse and a lack of love. Paul says, You can have the truth all day, but if it doesn't have love with it, it sounds like a clanging gong and a loud cymbal. Don't use your voice in that way. The last thing, the one I want to leave you with, is you have to admit that this is nigh impossible. The kind of, the kind of living that we talked about last week and that we're talking about this week feels impossible. How could I possibly even do it? You're right. It is impossible. On your own, without the Holy Spirit's guidance, without Christ's faithfulness to you, without God's sovereignty in your life, this is impossible. So therefore, push in humility into the reality that seeking first the good of someone else is very difficult and I need the Holy Spirit. Humility tells you that you cannot do it alone. Secondly, trust that God has ordained marriage, and that it is a good thing, and that the wisdom that he offers on marriage is the key to a good marriage. Trust it and move into it, even when it feels unintuitive and dangerous to do so. And lastly, seek first love for your spouse. Because in humility, trust, and love, there is a way forward. If you're, if you're in this room this morning, and last week you heard an address to husbands and this week you heard an address to wives and at the end of it you feel encouraged because you have a marriage that sounds a lot like you heard described. But I, I want you to be grateful because that is a good gift from God. It is his kindness to you and I want you to tell your spouse how thankful you are for them. If you're in the room and you're in another category, you heard this about husbands and you heard this about wives and you go, my, my marriage doesn't look anything like that. And I don't even imagine how it could look anything like that. We fight constantly. We're always looking to be the winner. Then I want to encourage you this morning to stop fighting to reign the throne of a marriage that's killing you. You've tried it your way. It's led to destruction and death and sadness. Try his way. The accuser will tell you that that is the way to death and sadness. And I'm telling you that it is the way to hope and life. Lay down your self. And I would encourage one last thing. Tonight, every couple in this room, set aside time for a conversation. Whether it's over dinner or after the kids are in bed, I want you to sit across from each other and have a talk. And that talk needs to consist of three things. Number one, you need to confess where you have failed to live up to the standards that God has called you to in your marriage. Confess it. And husbands, this is where headship comes in. You get to start. Second, repent, which means commit to turning away from that kind of life. I have done it, and it has led to hurt and destruction, and I am committing through the help of God to not go back there. And then lastly... Be prepared to extend grace and love and forgiveness to one another. Because God's hope for you is that you would look more like Jesus and that you would reflect the glorious reality of Jesus and the church being united in love together. And that can be a reality in your marriage. Let's pray for that here. God, we thank you so much for the good gift of marriage. I pray for the marriages in this room and in this church that they would be strengthened, that they would find hope in self-sacrifice. God, that submission would come naturally to us because of our love for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.